Our scripture reading is from Mark 16, found on page 10 of your bulletin, and it's also projected above. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were there, saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Allison. I appreciate it. Uh, kids, I mentioned your Trinity Kids Bulletin at the beginning of the service. You can grab that now. And there are three things that I want you to listen for, and there's a spot on that bulletin where you can jot these down. Okay, so I'm going to mention these at different times during the sermon. The first is a dog. Uh, secondly, Eeyore. And then thirdly, a cliffhanger. So dog, uh, Eeyore, and cliffhanger. So with that, let me, uh, let me pray for us as we come to this passage. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is absolutely true, that it's given, uh, that you've given it to us uh, because you love us. And so, Father, we pray that you would draw near to us now by your spirit and that you would accomplish in us what you desire, that we might come to know and see Jesus all the more. And we pray this all in his name. Amen. So uh, four years ago, we, uh, we bought our dog, or bought our dog, we bought our boys a dog uh, for Christmas. And so uh, we aren't typically the parents who do a big surprise. Like we just don't do a whole lot of surprises like that. But our boys had been um, asking for a dog literally for years. And so we thought this is something to surprise them with. And so uh, part of the reason it was such a big deal is because they had been asking for a dog for so long, and we had said no so many times. And uh, eventually what happened is that they started lowering their expectations. So it went from a dog to just like a, a pet in general, which meant like a hamster or a gerbil. We said no to that as well. Uh, and then uh, at the low point, uh, they, they just wanted a bird, all right? <laughs> So, uh, so all that to say, it was a huge deal when we finally decided that we were going to get them a dog. So Jeanette goes, picks up the dog. She texts me when she gets back so that I can video them with, and, and to get their uh, reaction. And so Jeanette comes in the door, walks around the corner, and of course the boys completely freak out about it. They're, they're totally excited about it. But then one of them says this, wait, we got a dog? Really? This isn't just a prank that you're going to put on YouTube? And I don't know exactly what that says about us as parents, right? But that's what was said. And so it's a situation where maybe they had gotten their hopes up so many times 
And your parents had told them no so many times that when it finally does happen, your thought is, is this going to be on YouTube? Is that what's happening here? Here's the point, though. That there are times where, where you've experienced so much disappointment, where things have gone so poorly or been so hard for you, that it becomes really hard to believe, even in some really great news that is right in front of you. And that's exactly where our passage picks up. That's the situation that these women find themselves in, a situation where their hope is gone. Because what's happened is that Jesus is dead. He's the one uh, in whom these three women had placed all of their hope. They believed with, with the whole of who they were that he really was the Messiah and the King. But he had been killed. Their expectations have been crushed. They're sad, they're confused. And, and at this point, they have no hope at all because of what has just happened around them. And it was real interesting uh, this week, I was thinking that, that every year at Easter, I, I, I always have something that I end up mentioning that has just happened in recent weeks that makes hope really hard. Some years it's been uh, the, the death of a member of our congregation. Uh, one year, of course, it was the pandemic. Um, this year it has been the, the multiple cancer diagnoses. And it's been the, the horrific tragedy that happened at, at Covenant in Nashville two weeks ago, a, a school and a church that we have very uh, personal connections to. So I was thinking about this week and it came as this stark reminder that there is always something like that. There is always something that, 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 is, that, that is going to remind us that this world is devastatingly broken and that living in this fallen world is so, so hard, even unbelievably hard at times. And so if I know, if I were to ask you, what are the things in your life that, that cause you immense pain and suffering right now? The things that make, you, make it difficult for you to hope, I know you could immediately list those things. That's where these women find themselves. Here's what's really important to see though, that it's right there, right in the middle of their sadness, their darkness and their hopelessness, that this news of Jesus's resurrection breaks in. And so what comes to them is this message that literally completely changes their lives. Why? Because if Jesus Christ really had been raised from the dead, then that means that there is, there is reason for real, true, and lasting hope. Even in, and maybe even especially in, the darkest days of our lives. And that's what the resurrection of Jesus does for us as well. And so here's what I want us to see on this Easter Sunday. It's that the resurrection of Jesus brings real hope into our hopelessness. It brings real hope into our hopelessness. How does he do that? Three ways. First, Jesus' resurrection brings us hope by giving us reasons to believe. By giving us reasons to believe. And I think it's really important that we start here. And I, why would I say that? Well, because you might believe that if the resurrection of Jesus really happened, then it really would give you hope. The problem, though, is that believing that Jesus really did die Believing that he really did rise again can be incredibly difficult. Because I think what, what you, get, you can get so used to hearing this sort of story that if you try to take it seriously, it almost sounds like a fairy tale. 
like something that couldn't really be true because it's too good to be true. And so here's what's so great about Mark's account is that what he shows is that those closest to Jesus actually struggled to believe this too. So uh, these women who had been with Jesus from the very start, who had seen him perform all of these incredible miracles, including raising people from the dead, they had heard him teach, they had heard him predict his own death and resurrection, and, and still, after having been with him for these three years, have a really hard time believing that this is true. And so what this whole passage does is it shows that the women went to the tomb on that Easter morning 100% expecting to find Jesus' lifeless body. That is what they thought they were coming to find. They were bringing spices to anoint his body, and they're thinking about questions on the way to the tomb, like, how are we going to roll away that big stone? We saw where his body was laid. We can't roll that away. But they're not thinking any about the possibility that they might walk up on an empty tomb. When they get there, they, they see that the tomb's empty, and there's this angel of the Lord who's standing there. And of course, just like what happens every time in the Bible when somebody sees an angel, they're terrified, right? They, they, they freak out about it. And it's not just because of the angel, though. They're terrified because they went to the tomb expecting to find Jesus dead. And here's why I mention this. It can be really easy and really tempting to, say, to think something like this. Yeah, pe people in the ancient world didn't have the same level of understanding of science, of, uh, of, the, of medicine, and even of the human body that we do. So for them, the, the, the idea that, that a dead person could come back to life would have been a whole lot easier for them to believe. And of course, it is absolutely true that we've made incredible advances in science, medicine, and understanding of the human body. But here's the thing. One of the things that has been a pr pretty much constant throughout all human history is that dead people stay dead, right? That's not come with just some great 20th century medical advance. And they knew that. And that's part of the reason it was so difficult for them to believe. But I actually think there was another reason that this was really difficult for them. And I think it was this. They had just endured the most devastating, most hope-crushing events of their entire lives. And they are so sad, they are so confused, and they are so heartbroken that they don't even have a category for this kind of good news. And the thing is, is that, that when you're in a place like that, it becomes almost easier to not even let yourself begin to hope and to instead just be, begin to expect that there is no good news that's coming. Have you ever felt that way before? Where it feels like in your life, the sorrow, the darkness, the depression, the frustration, the disappointment, the death, the sickness continue to pile up on you and they weigh you down so badly that you get to a place where it actually feels easier to stop hoping that it's ever even going to change and to instead begin expecting that darkness to continue. That's what cynicism is. It's an attempt to try to protect yourself from feeling that pain and that sorrow by instead expecting it to happen. Here's the problem with cynicism, though. 
it really does feel like it works temporarily. It feels like you really are protecting yourself from suffering. What you're actually doing though is you're cutting yourself off from even the possibility of ever experiencing any kind of hope or joy. And so um, one of, no doubt, my, my all-time favorite examples of this is Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. So you remember uh, Eeyore, as he makes his way in the world, he literally has a rain cloud that follows him around. And so he says things like this, good morning, Pooh Bear, if it is a good morning, which I doubt. Or this is really good about not being able to experience joy. After losing his tail, he gets a red balloon tied on in the back and he says this, Sure is a cheerful color. Guess I'll have to get used to it. He expects bad things to come. That's what we start doing as well. It can be the case that it makes it so hard to even begin to hope that there might even just be the possibility that there is something true that could cut off, that can cut through that cynicism. I think that's what these women find themselves doing. That's where they find themselves. Their hopes are crushed. And so it was so much easier to think this can't be true. But here's what's so great about this great news. Right in the middle of Mark's account of, women's, of the women's doubt and fears, he gives them reasons to believe. And he does this in a couple of ways. One is this, it's that, that one is that women were the first witnesses of Jesus's resurrection. So if you notice, this entire passage is written from the perspective of the women. So they are the ones who get there to, who hear this message from the angel, they see the empty tomb. And although Mark doesn't mention this, they are the first ones who actually go tell other people about it. Women were the first witnesses of Jesus's resurrection. Okay, why would that be such a big deal? Why would that be something that would actually point to, to the historic reliability and authenticity of these accounts? Well, it's because in the first century, the testimony of women was worth next to nothing. They weren't allowed to testify in religious or civil courts. And so here's the point of this, other than that obviously being something that was wrong. If you're gonna make up a story that, that, that you wanted people to believe, what you would never do is choose women to be the first witnesses who went to tell others. And so the much better explanation as to what's actually happening here is that this really did happen as Mark says it did. And so not only are they the first witnesses, he actually goes on to list their names in verse one. Did you notice that? And this is the, the third time in about three paragraphs that he mentions them specifically. Why would that matter? Well, because in the ancient world, these witnesses were, were uh, this is almost like uh, listing footnotes in an eyewitness account. It was a way to say, if you wanna verify that what I'm writing really did happen, you can go talk to these women yourself. So that's the first reason that, that he gives us to believe. Here's the second. Uh, the, the second reason is in how the women respond. And so, uh, what Mark does, uh, he, he mentions three different times in his gospel that Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. And if Mark mentions that three times, it's likely that Jesus said it a bunch of times. And yet, and yet, nobody expected it to happen. These women didn't expect it to, to, to happen and the disciples don't even show up at the tomb. And then after they hear this news, Mark says they went out and fled. He says, because they're scared to death and they didn't say anything to anybody. Here's the question then. 
If Mark was just making up this, the, the, this story to try to get people to believe something that didn't actually happen, why would he ever write a story like this? And the answer, of course, is that he wouldn't. The much better explanation is that this is what actually happened and that's why it's recorded this way. So here's the point. The point is that the Bible actually gives us really good reasons to believe in the historic reality of the resurrection. Why is that so important? It's important because if the bodily resurrection of Jesus didn't actually happen in history, then we are literally hopeless. Paul says exactly that. He says that, that if Christ hasn't been raised, then Christians are of all people the most to be pitied. John Updike, writer and poet, says this in his famous seven stanzas for Easter. Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's disillusion did not reverse, the molecule renit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. Here's the thing though. What the gospel accounts say is that it really did happen. That what we read today is not some sort of motivational or inspirational story that's supposed to help you look more positively on the hard things in your life. What we've read is that it is a true historic account of a man named Jesus of Nazareth who literally died and who three days later literally was raised from the dead. In other words, you have a flesh and blood savior who died and rose again bodily. And that means that your hope is not in vain. So that's the first reason, uh, that, that uh, the first way that Jesus' resurrection brings hope. It's by giving us reasons to believe. There's a sense, though, uh, uh, that, that you might hear that and think, that's great. I believe this is real. This is true. What does that mean for me right now? And so Mark gives us a couple of, uh, of reasons why it matters for us right now. And so secondly, Jesus' resurrection brings hope by forgiving us for our failures, by forgiving us for our fa failures. Where do we see this? It, it comes in this beautiful two-word phrase from the angel in verse seven. He says this, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. He mentions Peter specifically. Why would that be such a big deal? Well, it would be such a big deal because of what had just happened two nights before, where Peter had denied and disowned Jesus. And so here's how that conversation went. Jesus had said this to the disciples the night before his crucifixion. He said, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Peter hears this and is typical Peter, thinks no way that's happening. It may be that all these other guys are gonna bail on you, I will not. And so he says to Jesus, even though they will all fall away, I won't. And he goes on to say, if I must die with you, I won't deny you. And yet that's exactly what he did. And he denied him not once, not twice, but three times. And so I, I want you to try to put yourself in Peter's shoes. I want you to think about the, the overwhelming guilt, the burden of the shame that you would feel. 
You'd be thinking things like, there is no way that Jesus would ever want anything to do with me again. Not after what I just did. Not after the way that I denied him so publicly after saying that I would be with him forever. And here's the thing. Obviously, your failures and my failures are different from Peter's in certain respects. But in a lot of ways, they're not that different. Because every single one of us in here has something in your past and maybe in your not so distant past that when you think about it, it makes you cringe. It may even make you say something audible or groan as you remember the kinds of things that you've done. Maybe it was what you said to your husband in that fit of rage that you want so badly to unsay and take back, but that has radically changed your marriage from here on. Maybe it's something that you've done on a work trip and that nobody else even knows to this day. Maybe it's something you did on spring break and the guilt and the shame is eating you alive on the inside and you don't know what to do about it. No matter what you try to do, it won't go away. Say a writer named Maggie Mullen, she says this, my head hitting the pillow at night is like a needle coming down on a record that plays all my failures. See, the, the fear, and Peter's fear, like Peter's, is this. How is Jesus going to respond to that? What's he going to say to me? So here's what happens. The angel says this. Go and tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus will meet them. And he says that after Peter has blown it after he's denied him. Now, how is that possible? How can he communicate that message to him? It's possible because Jesus had just died to take the judgment due for his sin and betrayal. And his coming out of the grave on that third day was in the words of Tim Keller, God's way of stamping paid in full on the ledger of Peter's sin and guilt. And so here's what that means. It means that because Jesus rose from the dead, there is forgiveness for your deepest and darkest failures, even those things that nobody else knows. If you've put your faith in Jesus, then those sins have been fully and finally paid for by him. And that payment was guaranteed by his rising on the third day. And so if you've put your faith in Christ, then the empty tomb says to you, you can have hope even in the darkest of your failures because your sin has been forgiven and defeated by your risen Lord, and that will never change. Thirdly, and finally, Jesus' resurrection brings us hope by chasing away the darkness, by chasing away the darkness. So here's the thing. Of all of the things that, that could leave us feeling hopeless, the greatest of all of those is the seeming unrelenting darkness of death itself. But if the tomb is empty, and Jesus is risen, then that means that death no longer wins in the end. It means that death, the, the, the one that Paul calls the final enemy, it, it has been, past tense, defeated. And so Mark shows this in a couple of different ways. Both of them are found in verse 2. So look back there. He says this first. He says, and very early on the first day of the week. So you might remember that, that every time that Jesus predicts his own death, he says he's going to rise on the third day. And yet the way Mark describes it here is as happening on the first day of the week. 
And so here's why that matters. Mark's saying, you remember the original creation week that began on that first day when God made everything in this world. Well, this is the beginning of another creation week. But this is the beginning of the new creation week. The beginning of this world being made new. That's one way he hints at this. The second is even more subtle. He says this phrase, he mentions this phrase, when the sun had risen. And it might be that, that you read that, it's really tempting to blow right by it. Remember though, Mark doesn't waste any words at all. And so what's he saying? Well, throughout his gospel, what's happened, and especially towards the, the, the final days of Jesus's life, there's been all of this darkness and things continue to get darker and darker so that all of chapter 14 happens in the dark until finally the darkness is at its worst in Mark 15, as Jesus was being crucified. Here's what that verse says. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over, all, over the whole land. So as Jesus hung on the cross in the middle of the day, there was darkness everywhere. And this wasn't the ordinary darkness that they had been used to. This was the full darkness of all of the sin and the evil of a world in rebellion against its creator. It was the darkness of the judgment for the sin and the evil that we have committed. But Mark says, after the worst of that darkness, the darkest of all darkness, on this Easter morning, the sun had risen. And it's this echo of the Old Testament prophet Malachi who says this, but for you who fear my name, the sun, the S-U-N, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And see, so what, what he's saying is that finally, after long last, the darkness that Isaiah had talked about as covering all the peoples, the darkness of sin, of death, of evil, the darkness of, of depression, of your unmet hopes, of your crushing failures, that darkness is finally being chased away. Because in the words of Isaiah in chapter 25, on this mountain, death will be swallowed up forever. God will wipe away every tear from all faces and the reproach of his people will finally be taken away. Why? Because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and now a new day has dawned. Here's what that means for us. It means that if you put your faith in Jesus, then what God has done for Jesus's body, he will do for you. Christianity says that everyone who puts their faith in Jesus, though they die, they will one day be raised with a body like his. That is one thing that this means for us. It also means this. It means that what God has done for Jesus's body, he will one day do for this entire material world. See, the, the, the final hope of Christianity is that this world, this very physical world, will one day be made new when Jesus returns so that there is a day coming when all the darkness of sin and sorrow and sickness and death will be chased away once and for all. That's the hope that the resurrected Jesus offers us. It's this kind of, of true and real hope that can breathe life into the most hopeless places. So what do we do with that? Here's what's interesting about Mark's gospel. Uh, if you notice, he ends with this serious cliffhanger. 
He says this in verse eight. He says that the women went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. And we know from the other accounts, of course, and even that we know this account, that they didn't stay quiet and fearful, that they did go and tell the disciples this great news, exactly what the angel had said. But Mark here leaves us with a question. And it's the question that I wanna leave you with today. How are you going to respond to this empty tomb? How are you gonna respond to this one who has gone into death and come out the other side as the resurrected Lord and now invites you to put your faith in him? How will you respond? Let me pray for us. Father, we give you thanks for this great news this news that we could never imagine, that we would never expect, that we would never think up. This news that your son Jesus has died and been raised again. And so Father, we pray that, that you would enable us to be a people defined by hope, that we would look to him in faith, that we would know him to be our risen Lord and conquering King, the one who will one day return and make all things new. We pray this all in his name and for his glory, amen.